to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, everyone. Welcome to VC Law, a podcast brought to you by the American Bar Association. I'm your host, Gary Ross. Today, we have with us Zach Fallon, a partner, the founding partner at the firm, at the law firm Ketzel. Uh, first of all, Zach, thank you so much for being on the being on the program. Yeah, thanks, Gary. It's uh, very happy to be here. It's great to chat. Yeah. Uh, can you start off by telling us a little bit about your background? Absolutely. I um, So I am a partner, as you said, at, at Ketzel. We are a fintech legal boutique and consulting firm, um, which has a large focus on uh, the digital asset space in, in particular, although it's, we're not exclusively focused on that space. I, um, as you noted, I, I, I was one of the, I am one of the founding partners at Ketzal. We, we launched um, four years ago in 2018, really at the height of um, a lot of the digital uh, assets activity at that time, the ICO, so-called ICO boom, um, really in an effort to um, provide compliant solutions for people developing uh, and launching projects in that space and, and guidance along that, those lines. I, I came to Quetzal from the Securities and Exchange Commission where I was in the Division of Corporation Finance. Um, I started in at the SEC back in 2009 in their general counsel's office and uh, worked there for a number of years um, and transitioned in, in 2012 when, when the uh, Jobs Act, so-called Jobs Act, was adopted and uh, immediately started working on a number of, of rulemakings related to the Jobs Act. Uh, Reg A in particular was, was my primary focus, I'd say, although I, I worked on the fringe of, of Reg CF and, and 506C and, and um, some other issues going on at the time. The um, it, During my time at the SEC, I, you know, my focus on crowdfunding um, uh, was, uh, was was almost exclusive in, in many ways and, and and working on in the exempts the SEC's exempt rule space. Um, that's sort of how I initially got exposed to cryptocurrencies and, and digital asset really through the uh, the questions around, you know, what's the appropriate exemption for for these types of offerings or how should they be regulated? Those types of early questions at the at the commission that I was um, sort of fortunate to be a part of. And Zach, about what year was that when uh, when you first became exposed to to this space? So it was about 2017, I think, when I was, I, I think people had been working on it certainly before me, but I, my first exposure was really in 2017 mm. um, when some of the some of the questions were coming out. As, as the space really started to grow exponentially, um, obviously there was more interest internally in, in figuring out how to address those really, those types of issues. And so that's how it became exposed um, and, and really how it became interested. I mean, I always looked at, uh, the cryptocurrency space or digital asset space as sort of the, you know, at its best, the potential to kind of be like a crowdfunding 2.0, if you will. And and again, so my interest in crowdfunding generally, um, uh, that's sort of where I, I could see the opportunity. And um, I was a little frustrated at the time with the lack of compliance and, and, and I wanted to, um, the lack of really of guidance that I, I thought people were getting. And so I, I wanted to, to leave the SEC to, saw an opportunity, frankly, to to launch a shop that could could help, you know, provide some of that guidance. And so that's really what we've done um, since we launched. We work with a number of projects in the space and, and different players from investors, companies, uh, intermediaries, and 
uh, exchanges. So uh, great exposure. Um, prior to the SEC, I was at uh, uh, Latham & Watkins for uh, a few years in the their London and San Francisco office, just doing more traditional capital markets work. But um, great. yeah, I've had, had a good time so far. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. Uh, uh, so tell me about the name of the firm, Ket, Ketsal. So how, yeah. did, how did you all come up with that? Ketsal is, is really, um, it's uh, a, a sort of a, a nod to um, one of our partners, uh, Guatemalan Roots. Um, and a lot of us are, are have, uh, the founding partners have some relation to um, South America or, or Latin Roots. And so we, we, we really kind of wanted to make a nod to, um, to, to that. And the, the Quetzal bird is um, sort of the, I think it's the national bird of, of Guatemala. Um, and so that's really where that came out on, on one level. The other is um, the tail feather of, of the Quetzal is, uh, was used as a currency way back in the day, a um, long time really? ago. And oh, so gosh. that's sort of, uh, again, it's sort of a nod to, to the space that we're in, to our, to our cultural heritage as, as founders uh, or, you know, our families at large. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's sort of a, a play on, on that and, um, you know, spelled phonetic, phonetically and, and sort of jazz up a bit. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Do, do you ever tell people like there's a uh, a partner named Ketsal and you'd love to give people a break on price, but Ketsal won't let won't let you? <laughs> <laughs> no. We we actually, you know, we 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 started. I think you know we had Ketsal as a consulting firm, and then we we the law firm was you know technically named a bunch of names right at the time yeah. we founded, and we're Ketsal is our is our DBA, um, but. Um, but anyway, yeah. So we do have that somewhere back in the paperwork. The uh, oh, okay. partner names. <laughs> All right. Well, one thing you're leaving out is your acting background. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, funny. Um, you're you're uh, you're surprising me with some good ones here, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was a uh, that was a long time ago. But I I was fortunate to do some fun things. I uh, I was on the stage in the in the West End in London, and I, I got to perform uh, do the Charleston. Um, I uh, I used to do a lot of theater, and that's really where I spent a lot of my time. Um, and I did quite well in, in ev- uh, evidence advocacy, as you can imagine, in, in law school. Uh, for that reason. <laughs> oh, great! Well, <laughs> but, uh, how come you didn't become a litigator? Well, I, I actually did litigation for a while. I um, when I started at Latham, I, I did uh, I worked in capital markets, but I also did some litigation work. Mm-hmm. Um, I also did some pro bono in in the courts in San Francisco for, with um, with some homeless helping some homeless folks. Um, who had interactions with uh, San Francisco police. So I, I did a lot of uh, advocacy along those lines early on, um, more pro bono, I would say. And and actually, when I joined the SEC, I, I, as I said, I joined the general counsel's office um, in their litigation group. So that's really where I started. Uh, so I, I kind of have a, you know, okay. kind of a mixed approach, mixed uh, background in that, in that regard. Yeah. And uh, one one more question, and then and then we'll, we'll go right into it. Uh, you were at the SEC for how long? For nine years, yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. And uh, so, which term do you prefer? We, we, we've heard a lot: cryptocurrency, crypto assets, tokens, digital assets. It seems like we're uh, some, you know, coins. Some of those are no longer being used, and we're kind of settling on a few terms. Do you have a personal preference? And what do you think that most people in this industry use? Yeah, I mean, I think from a you know from from a client and industry standpoint, my you know my general sense is that people still use the term tokens. Um, but you know, generally, I think digital asset is the most appropriate starting place from a legal perspective. Um, and so, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I think you can 
you know, digital asset, I think, is just generally acknowledges the breadth of, of possibility um, in, in what these things are. Tokens kind of have a, a connotation to them. And I think that it's more colloquial uh, for those building in the space and for, for people just to, to understand what they're talking about versus a digital asset feels a little stilted, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And digital asset, it, it seems like a more encompassing term. Yeah, exactly. Um, it it yeah. can include everything. Uh, now, it used to be the big thing in 2017, 18, uh, 19. Uh, the big issue was whether a token was a security or a utility. And people thought, hey, if it's a utility, then you don't have to comply with securities laws. You can sell it to non-accredited investors and all that. Is that still uh, is that still a raging debate today, or has that been settled, or what? What? Um, what? Where, where are things right? What, what's the lay of the land in the security versus utility token debate? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think the, the the substance of the issue is still the same, right? Which is, um, you know, have you have you essentially in, in offering and selling a digital asset, did you, have you essentially sold an investment contract at the same time? Um, whether you can look at that as something that's ancillary to that asset or um, sort of encompassing of that asset, the 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 analysis is still there, and and the debate. Um, I don't think it's really a debate anymore. I think it's just an acknowledgement that hey, we have to be careful in the way we we fund the development of and, and launch these assets because uh, what we don't want to do or what projects don't want to do are, are to launch investment contracts. And so the if you launch a so-called utility token, really the idea there is that you are launching something that has consumptive value as its primary driver of, of value rather than um, speculative and profit-making value. And I think that that's really where um, where that's sort of where the economic reality would, would suggest whether or not something is a so-called investment contract versus um, something that would be looked at as a consumptive token, a, a so-called utility token. Um, maybe I should give, do, do you want some, should we talk a little bit about, you know, what an investment contract is? I don't want to assume anything uh, or if you think it's useful. Yeah, sure. Yeah. For our listeners, uh, it's it's kind of funny. When I first started teaching CLEs years ago, I would kind of skip over the slide on what is a security because I was like, oh, you know, if the, if this ever comes up and you're having to argue that something's not a security, then you're in a bad spot. And like three years later, things exploded and like everybody knew what the Howey test was. <laughs> it went from this little known thing like uh, uh, this little known thing to just being being everywhere. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. So, um, and I completely agree. When when I started as a securities attorney, I didn't really, um, you know, just focus on debt and equity, frankly, right, and not really appreciating um, all the uh, the line items in the the uh, the thirty three act or thirty four x list of, of mm -hmm. securities, uh, of which an investment contract is one. And and in the digital asset space, what what constitutes an investment contract, which again is a, is a type of security defined. Um, as defined under federal securities laws, is really determined through the application of, of facts and circumstances surrounding the manner in which a given digital asset is, is offered and sold to purchasers. So, this uh, you know, just for background, this analysis is is based on a Supreme Court case um, that result uh, called Howey uh, and resulted in so-called Howey test that involved the offer and sale of interest in, in an orange grove in Florida. Um, and in that case, in in its progeny, the Howey test. As it's come to be known, is the analysis around that generally involves a, a four-part test to see if if there was a, a contract or a transaction or scheme in which a person um, first prong really being a, in which a person invests money. Second prong, it would be in a common enterprise. Uh, third prong, and is led to expect profits. 
a fourth prong really being solely from the efforts of a promoter or a third party. And so in, you know, in conducting that analysis, you really have to look at the so-called economic reality of the transaction to see, again, what sort of behavior was incentivized through that transaction. Uh, and I think importantly, one, you know, one thing that people often forget when conducting this analysis, you, you all have to think about, uh, keep in mind that the 33 Act in particular is a remedial statute, uh, meaning that if somebody is aggrieved, you know, the courts will look to that statute to see if there's a way in which that person can be made whole in some manner, um, you know, as, you know, in applying that law. So really starting over again, the, you, the issue of utility token comes into play because if, if someone's primary motivation in purchasing an asset or interest in a thing is, is to consume or use that thing, then it should not be viewed as an investment contract. Like a laundromat token. Right. That's right. That's a, that's a great example. And, and the motive is not profit, right, or speculation, but it's consumption. Um, I think today projects are much better, you know, given the, the breadth of guidance, um, well, of guidance of a sort, right, coming from the SEC, as far as how they view these things, that uh, that they're, they're much more cognizant of that they need to think about um, the way in which they launch, the time at which they, they sell the assets or, or potential interests in the assets and and making sure that the the platforms on which these assets function have consumptive value at the time those um, digital assets are sort of let loose and, and into the world as opposed to some of the footfalls, um, whether in the form of marketing or or otherwise that that were made early on. And that's the that's the point of the SAFT, right? Simple agreement for future tokens that it doesn't convert until after it's already been distributed. Right, and I think so. The the SAF that's exactly right. So the SAF the the SAF project was was um, you know a thought leadership project from uh, the Cooley Law Firm put out um, that really the industry you know took and ran with. Um, but it was a you know it was a thought leadership piece. Um, a lot of people used uh, the SAF that was attached to that project or, or thought leadership piece to to raise capital. Um, and I think the you know it certainly moved the needle as a thought leadership piece. It also um, you know, it raised concerns around whether or not it was looking at the concept of an investment contract in with like with the appropriate level of scope that, say, a regulator or arbiter of fact would look at it. Again, thinking of this as a remedial statute in that the the SAF sort of said, yes, it's a we have an investment contract before, you know, we'll take your capital today, we'll build this asset and then we'll give you that asset when it's ready and live. And at that stage, the, the investment contract terminates sort of our, our investment contractual mm -hmm. obligations essentially terminate at that time of delivery. And then you have this consumptive asset to use on the system. And I think that's sort of one view. The other, the other view, sort of the flip side of that is, well, listen, you're, you know, when do your investment contractual obligations, when are they satisfied? Wait, right. is the, you know, if they if you can still deliver the asset, doesn't mean that people aren't still relying on you to, to have it do something. And if if the if that asset is trading on exchanges or otherwise able to be speculated in, then that investment contract is actually the your obligations associated with that are actually much broader than just delivery, right? It's sort of um, continued reliance on for for profit making, and so I think there that's sort of where the SAP project maybe was looking at it too narrowly. Um, whether it's whether the result is as broad as the SEC is looking at it, I don't know, right? Well, that's sort of where I think some some value can come from. From other arbiters of facts, you know, courts coming in and saying, you know, this is this is sort of where the line is with respect to this given asset and given these certain these given facts. Yeah, pe people realize that 
and that it wasn't a certainty that the SEC was on board with this concept. So and then in the industry, uh, all of a sudden we heard, oh, can't use the SAF, can't use the SAF, you know, it might get in trouble if you use the SAF. So people were just renaming it Purchase Agreement for Future Tokens. Yeah, no, it's and, hard. Yeah, that's right. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're just thinking of different names. In the last year or two, I've, I've just seen people go back to Saft. It's like, okay, whatever. The the name is uh, we've seen the same thing, which is yeah. which is the a reversion sort of to Saft just because um, you know, again, it's the economic reality of the transaction. And right. but, but to be honest, uh, people are a lot more cognizant of securities laws than they were in 20, you know, 17, yeah. 18. And so I think there are still ways in which um those staffs can be offered and sold in compliance with security laws, right? It's just, mm -hmm. it's not that projects aren't doing that. It's just that, you know, retail investors in the U.S. are not getting exposed to those opportunities. Yeah, and the framework for, I mean, uh, William Henman's speech and the framework for digital assets back in 2019 did contemplate this idea that you could have something that's one form, that's a security, and then it, it does change at some point based on kind of what's the surroundings or ecosystem maturing. Yeah, that's right. Although I think that, you know, um, whether or not uh, that is now sufficiently cabin to be his views and his views only, I don't know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the SEC uh, would take a position on that publicly that that uh, at this stage. Yeah. Yeah. Is that not in the framework that was uh, that was published at? The, well, okay. So you're talking about the, the SEC staff issued a digital uh, so-called digital asset framework uh, for yeah. investment contracts analysis. Yeah, it was about the same time, right? As the Hinman speech, or was that, or was the the Hinman speech was a little bit before? I think Hinman was maybe summer of 2018, and I and I feel I could be okay. wrong, but I think the uh, the staff guidance maybe came out in 2019, so maybe. Okay, I think you're right. Early yeah. 2019, yeah. Okay, but so so they don't they don't really talk about anything regarding uh, transition away from security status and the framework. They really, um, you know, it's helpful in the sense that you get you get a view you get a a glimpse into how the SEC staff would look at and analyze or what sort of questions they would ask when analyzing whether or not some a digital asset involves um, an investment contract. And so I think that sense, it's it's very helpful, um, but it's not, you know, it's they don't answer the question for you. They're not going to do the analysis. So you really, you need to do that on your own or, you know, with counsel. Um, and so, and it's, you know, if, if you if you read every one of those questions, it's very hard to find a project that doesn't have some some bad facts as far as answers to some right. of those questions, which which are not necessarily you know which are suboptimal in some way. But you know, again, whether or not on balance all of those facts, uh, given all the other facts, um, are, you know, result in one way or another, it's hard to say because it's again, it's a facts and circumstances analysis. So any yeah. any, any change would could, could potentially change the outcome. Let me ask you about the last prong of the Howley test. So the efforts of others, the others, does that have to be the issuer or, or the, can that be you relying on the efforts of some third party? Um, I, you know, I think technically it can be some third party, but I think generally it's usually the issuer. I mean, it's, it's the, it doesn't have to be the issuer, I suppose. Um, well, I'm thinking of these foundations act where they have like a, uh, they, they try to say, oh, this is a distributed project and hey, we just have this foundation that happens to consist of the same people. And uh, everything's really this foundation that is maintaining everything. Yeah, in, in that regard, I mean, I think you would, you could kind of collapse the foundation with, potentially, right, collapse the foundation with the same people, as you said. Um, and really, you know, if it's an alter ego, it's still reliance on essentially the same active participants. Um, 
in the ecosystem. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that way, right? And I think that's kind of where um, it's hard to draw super bright lines um, because you can see mitigating some of those facts with the way in which the foundation is run or, or you know, the, the economic reality of what it can actually do as it relates to a given ecosystem. But but yeah, the the uh, putting something in a foundation is not a panacea. Let's be clear mm-hmm. about that. Well, what's the latest on guidance with the SEC? Has there been any recent no action letters or guidance that's that's come out? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I mean, the uh, yeah, yeah, I remember the the first no action letters, everybody got all excited. The turnkey jet, I believe in pocket full of quarters, but there was really just they were really just kind of coupons. Yeah, they really I think- didn't help people. Yeah, I mean, I think they they stated somewhat. Um, they kind of they laid out somewhat obvious, right? I mean, helpful again, helpful. Glad it stated and applied in the digital asset context, but they, I think, they largely stated what uh, most securities attorneys sort of probably already knew. Um, and um, you know, the staff at the time, I think, got some you know heat for for issuing what may some may call something obvious, but I think you know ultimately. It's good to have it out there because yeah. because then you, people can see the application to this kind of novel type of asset, and I and you know ultimately I think that's beneficial to have something to refer back to, certainly and point clients to. Otherwise, there's nothing. But yeah. uh, there was there was one other which came out after um, Pocketable Quarters uh, called Inview or, or IMVU, um, and that one I still been I think it was still a couple of years ago, but it was it was helpful in that it it really um, I think. To a certain extent, for the first time, um, acknowledged the 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 fact of the sort of the market reality that these assets may trade off the get off the platform on which they're issued, um, and sort of and and not you know and in 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 its guidance or in in the way in which the facts were presented to the staff, um, the company um, through the Perkins Coie, which was the law firm. Um, really laid out how that would work and how an asset that which functions on a platform could make its way out into um, the open market without without necessarily tainting that asset's status as a you know or making that asset somehow not then a security and so you had this sort of closed loop network which this asset could function um this coin could function token and and then it would it would work go from a um essentially a cold wallet in the user's hands to a hot wallet that could be traded off but there were enough mitigating facts on on the platform side which kind of um reduce that speculative aspect that could could actually occur in this asset being traded off platform in such a manner that um it, it was more consumptive than than speculative oh but it could be traded when you say off platform it could be traded on an exchange somewhere yes if i'm remembering correctly it oh. could they basically the staff was acknowledging look you can have this um this uh coin function on this platform mm-hmm. um and it could eventually make its way off of that platform and uh, one, you know, just for background, one of the the big, uh, one of like almost it's almost dispositive in many ways in the staff's view. One of the aspects that that is most problematic about these assets is the way in which they can trade on right. platforms, right? And and so and in so doing, they can people can speculate on them because suddenly you're you have an asset that that everyone is ascribing a different values to, and you can you can sell it to the highest bidder, irrespective of the way in which you consume it. Um, right, and so, the and clients would say, hey, I don't have any control. Exactly. We'll have right. it all of a sudden. They're springing up on exchanges that I don't have anything to do with. 
Exactly. And so, and, and so, um, and query whether or not they, they do have control at the, the time of issuance to sort of mitigate some of that. And I think that's kind of what I, I am view or in view address, which is, um, acknowledging the way that the fact that these things may trade off of, uh, but at the same time, putting enough factors in, like they would, it would only ever be worth a certain amount of value on their platform. Mm -hmm. So it would, it's not like people would speculate on it off platform because they would never get anything more than than what it was worth on the platform. And so there was a number of factors, again, which sort of acknowledged the reality, but at the same time sort of said, you know, on balance, this is not going to be result in a lot of, uh, or any, you know, not going to result in a lot of speculation, or that's not really what's going to happen with respect to this. And I, I don't know where, what actually came of that asset in the market Mm -hmm. after the fact. So that, that would be an interesting thing to know. Is it working or not? Yeah. A lot of these no action letters let you hear about it. And then like, you never hear from the company again. They're just yeah. like, I'll Google the name of the company and just, it'll just be that no action letter. <laughs> so, <laughs> don't hear anything. Uh, I know. I mean, uh, you know, to be honest, that's sort of, um, and that's, you know, it, this is one of the, the downsides of, of folks who have an approach, right? You can, you can kind of, you can run as fast as you can and hope for success and become ubiquitous in the market. Um, and then you're too big to fail sort of thing, or you can, you know, you can come in from a, from a compliance standpoint at the outset and see, you know, and see if you have a viable business once you're operating within the confines of a compliant regime. And, you know, as lawyers, you always have to sort of suggest the latter, right? right. People should be compliant. Yeah. Um, and it's not, it's not, it's not artists. You know, we can't make the decisions for companies at the same time. Um, what's unfortunate in this space in particular is that, Many of the companies that have gone that route um, just frankly haven't succeeded because yeah. of the, the the pressure and the the success of all those who have taken the former route. And so mm -hmm. um, it puts uh, it really puts an undue strain on on practitioners, on companies, the the um, to sort of uh, to really you know to, to pursue a path that is um, from a compliance standpoint is is not ideal, um, or you know in, introduces more risk to the project because. Again, you're in this world of facts and circumstances, and trying to mitigate things, and you know, dig through case law to to support um, various right. you know potential positions. Right. And about how long does it take to get a no action letter when somebody submits one? About uh, about how long does it take to get a uh, response, and then ultimately get it? Well, it depends. Um, it can be very quick sometimes. It can take uh, years. Other times, I think yeah. I think you know my sense is I think Pocketful of Quarters took about a year. Mm -hmm. um, um, maybe in view about the same, I don't know. Um, but I, you know, when I was at the staff, I, I saw no action letters come come in and out pretty quickly. Mm. Um, but like I think, a month or two, uh, probably you know, yeah, probably two to two to four, something like that, okay. and, at, at its best. Some of them, um, but you know, in, in the space, as you can imagine, these are this is staff guidance, and you can imagine it has to be um, has to be very carefully crafted uh, because of how fraught this is from a legal and regulatory perspective and the way in which the industry reacts to things. So there's a lot of policy that's going to be happening around these, these potential no action letters that is beyond just the four corners of the letters themselves, right? So it's not, um, so I think there's, with anything token related or digital asset related that goes into the SEC these days, or certainly in the last handful of years, I think there's you can sort of tack on a, a period of time that that uh, more senior folks have to kind of weigh in and figure out if this is worth doing or um, if it's not worth sticking their neck out at that stage. So it's 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 tough. I don't I don't envy them that that decision either. But it's it doesn't leave them the market in a great place either. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember uh, when people, I don't know if people are still doing token offerings from Switzerland, but they used to do a whole bunch from the Zug. And getting a no action letter was just part of the process. Like uh, the Swiss government, they would give it to you. It would take like four months or so. So you'd yeah. put in your no action letter request and then uh, you get it you, you get it in a few months. And it was, uh, it was great because it gave people certainty. Obviously, it has no effect in the U.S., uh, but it was uh, it at least gave them something for uh, when they were doing offerings outside the U.S. Yep. Yep. Let sure. me let, let 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 me ask you about uh, these exchanges and in the exchanges they become uh, um, many exchanges both inside and outside the U.S. It used to be vast majority were outside, but now we have Gemini and Kraken and all, all these that are here. And they and you go on there and you see a whole bunch of tokens. Now, have all those been declared to be not a security? How is it that they're trading on these exchanges? Yeah, so the only uh, digital asset that I'm aware of that is, uh, you know, sort of uniformly agreed is not a security would be Bitcoin. And, and anything else, I think, is um, you're on a slippery slope of, of um, facts and circumstances. Um, and so, no, not, I mean, <laughs> there, it's a gray area, right? I mean, I, I think, I think what what exchanges typically do is they they have a process right um in place to review assets and to sort of assess uh internally from a risk perspective whether or not a given asset uh so the degree of risk as to whether or not a given digital asset is a is a security or could be viewed to be a security and so um that's you know you can look at those exchanges and and you know just facially see their risk appetite um, based yeah. on the number of assets they list. It's just um, it's kind of that simple because you know remember um, unless you can see that something is an investment contract up front, it's only ever a post hoc determination as to whether or not it is. And so if if you're kind of in the middle of that process where nobody's conceded. No, somebody hasn't conceded it's an investment contract and you know if they are not conceding up front then, then how do you know until an arbiter fact determines that it is in fact an investment contract and so in in the interim you have people wanting to transact in those assets and those folks need you know in the absence of an arbiter the fact need to make their own assessment and so right. that's really what they're doing um and that's why you're seeing you know people list um and and that's that's sort of how they they come live on on various platforms. Now I assume all these securities, or at least for most of the uh, all these tokens, I'm sorry, uh, for these exchanges, I, I I'm guessing at least the larger, more established um, premier exchanges are asking for opinion letters uh, from firms. Is that still part of? Is that is that the case, Zach, or or not so much anymore? Um, I think some of them do. It, it, certainly, I think that's sort of. The, that certainly what was the case for a long time and whether or not that is still the case i think uh varies depending on the exchange or platform um okay. i think uh i you know i think you know there's it you know, my sense is that that is an analysis really that those exchanges should do on their own irrespective and independent of yeah. um, the projects right in a perfect world a project wouldn't be um interacting with an exchange that their asset would would appear on the exchange independent of their involvement right because then yeah. the, it's hard for somebody who who's using that asset to say hey you know i'm relying on you and, and when and it's my project and I, say, I didn't i didn't do anything i think just appeared over there um and so yeah, it's not like a foreign exchange like uh is dealing with the european central bank yeah exactly so i i think i think there's there's um 
there's that tension between exchanges wanting to put risk on um, the companies and that are issuing these assets versus the company saying, hey, you know, in so doing, you're you're injecting the kind of uncertainty that we're trying to avoid in the first instance. Mm-hmm. Um, you do your own analysis. We'll, you know, we're we're operating a company and and, and operating a platform that on which this um, asset functions. If you want, you know, if you want to determine whether it's a security or not, you know. Put a process in place that assesses that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw an opinion letter just uh, earlier this week that was like remarkably tame. It really just, uh, it was by a name brand firm and it just said, uh, there's a strong, there's a strong argument that it's not a security. And uh, evidently that was enough. So, okay. Yeah. Um, And and so, so, so where are things headed? Uh, So recently we had a a Gillibrand and, and, um, uh, Loomis, I think, yep, uh, Wyoming, right. uh, Wyoming Senator. So wh- where do you think the regulatory environment is headed versus where the industry is headed? And you can touch on the, the Loomis Chilibrand bill if you want, or you can talk about other things, just kind of in general, yeah. where things headed. Or, or is it, is it um, coming together? Or is it going apart? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, unfortunately, I think the the schism is growing between where the, you know, the regulatory position on this, um, focusing on, let's say, on the SEC, that is, um, versus the industry. And I think uh, that's unfortunate. And, you know, I I don't think that um, that's necessarily going to change. I think that that schism will continue to grow until there is uh, till there is legislation like the, the Loomis Gillibrand um, proposal or others that come into play. And that sort of provides some guidance um, or a directive to to an agency to, to do to do something or the SEC in its own volition sort of puts out some proactive guidance um, on on regimes that that may be accommodating. And so I think, um, you know, there's just as as you as you know, there's there's a lot of money flowing into the space and there's a lot of opportunity and there's a lot of projects launching. And so they, um, you know, the the that pressure is is only growing to continue down this path of of what you currently see in the market just um, just continuing to happen. And um, the the market, the industry is just iterating on itself and new things are developing. The technology is mm-hmm. is working fast and uh, or people developing it are working fast and finding new new solutions. And so all that continues to happen. Um, and in the meantime, the SEC has its position and you know it can only issue so much guidance uh, in the form of staff comments or or the guidance that flows out through settlements, right? It, there's only so much, I mean, how many additional settlements can it put out there saying the same thing that if, it, if the message is not being received, the message is not being received and, and mm-hmm. somebody needs to do something about that. Right. And, and if the SEC isn't going to do it, then then Congress needs to do it. Um, but I really think that, um, and that's the sort of, that's the effort that I think is happening now that happening in the last year or so that that wasn't happening before, which is the industry is is organizing, um, you know, from a policy perspective um, and sort of appreciating what they need to do inside the beltway to um, make their case for legislation. And I think on the flip side, um, when you have uh, when you have projects, you know, blow up like Terra or others, um, you you see the obvious need for um, regulatory oversight on 
on this space in some fashion, right? Yeah, the SEC had focused on stable coins. They had said that stable coins was an issue. And it yeah, turns exactly. out, I mean, they, they, they were right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's there's 100%. And, you know, oftentimes what you see with these projects when they blow up is you really see that, oh, there really was, you know, the Wizard of Oz was actually behind the curtain. Um, it wasn't sort of this thing that that just um, lived in, in the ether um, right. without anyone kind of pulling the strings. And, and so the, you know, time and time again, when you look behind the hood, you often see some level of control or, or things that uh, people objectively would be relying on. Um, but at the same time, um, the industry is not a monolith, right? There's, there's so many different projects developing in so many different ways. And so there, there is some real push for uh, and, and movement towards uh, a space where, where really, you know, securities laws may not be the best application of some of these, um, some of the, as it relates to the oversight of these assets. And so it's hard, it's hard to, you know, hard to say for sure. I, again, I think education, people coming together and having these discussions and really trying to figure out the, the way to, um, to regulate the spaces is what you're seeing, but you're not seeing enough of. And I think, um, I think, you know, Congress putting some pressure on the SEC to be a little more proactive is, is probably ultimately what's, what's happening, what you're seeing and probably well, ultimately what's going to happen. The, the Loomis Gillibrand um, Act, just for, for background, was it was uh, it was introduced into Congress, I think, uh, well, just this week, really, um, or here in, in early June. And the, you know, it, it addresses a lot of, it kind of ties a lot of the uh, loose threads together in the space. So from a tax perspective, from a securities perspective, from a commodities perspective, and and sort of puts forth uh, a vision of how these things may all interact and and could be regulated. Uh, it's not perfect, but it's a you know it's certainly a step in in the right direction in the sense that you have a, a bi um, bipartisan um, senators coming together saying we need to do something and, and this is what we suggest. Now, is it what will live until the end? No, I don't think so. There's there's a lot of things you can improve upon, but somebody's got to start these discussions. And you know, kudos to them and and the people who helped. I put that together for for doing that because um, the issues they raise and their suggestions are a lot of what people who work in the space are similarly suggest. Uh, so it's not inconsistent with a lot of that. I mean, there's always right. questions of what to do on the fringe, but um, but on substance, it's it's you know it's it's in the certainly in the heading in the right direction, and and that's yeah. what we need to see right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the driving headline here is moving a lot of the regulatory authority over to the CFTC, uh, stating that a lot of these digital assets are commodities. Now, as somebody who spent nine years at the SEC, uh, how do you feel about that? Do you feel that that's uh, correct or not? What do you uh, what, what 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 are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I I sort of uh, I don't really have a, an opinion on it at this stage. I do think the um, I, I think that makes sense. You know, when I when I look at it through their lens, I think that makes sense. Now, is it the only way you can you can do it? I don't think so. I don't think you need to necessarily approach it that way. I think the SEC certainly has plenty of existing authority, right? Even with in the absence of any con congressional action, existing authority to really um, put together a framework that would work for this space. Um, but you know, historically, the commission is loath to use it, and so often what you need is is congressional prompts mm -hmm. um, to to make them do stuff, which is uh, which is unfortunate because um, they have a lot of exemptive authority. They have a lot of um, they have a lot of a history in in you know using that authority uh, in in certain ways to help certain players. And you know, I wish we'd see more of that because then we could avoid a lot of this. Um, 
a lot of, you know, this back and forth around who's the best regulator to uh, to oversee the space, you know, whether it's the CFTC or the SEC. You know, again, I don't I don't feel strongly about it. I just I want there to be a solution that, you know, has some consensus around it and isn't sort of a directive, um, you know, is it, you know, it's something that appreciates sort of balances the right interest here. Now, I guess the big question is, so if it is regulated as a commodity instead, would that mean that it could, uh, would, would, would that mean that non-accredited investors could, could purchase a token then? I think the legislation, uh, if I, so I'd have to read it again, but I, I, I thought they addressed some of this with respect to retail participation mm-hmm. in these assets. Um, you know, generally, um, the in order for retail investors to participate in in commodities markets like the ones the CFTC regulates, my understanding is that you, t- you usually have to register that an offering with the SEC in order for that to happen. Otherwise, right. it's sort of left with eligible contract participants, yeah. uh, which is uh, which really would exclude is a higher is either a higher or a similar threshold to the accredited investor standards. So you really wouldn't really wouldn't get very far with just doing that. And I, I, I think um, without having absolute certainty that the legislation sort of addresses some of that concern. Yeah, I mean, there would still be some things to do, uh, which um, a, a lot of the people issuing tokens, you know, they they don't really want to do anything. They just want to complain. <laughs> and, no, uh, exactly. No, that's, that's right. That's, that's oh, right. Yeah. And there's, there's two sides to, to this, and, and and there's fault on both sides in, from my perspective as far as uh, the way people are are handling it. But I And I think, you know, the legislation, the proposed legislation, um, should be at a high level, right? It shouldn't be too prescriptive because right. let's let's be honest, you know, senators are not securities regulators, they're not securities attorneys typically, and neither are neither are they commodities experts. Um, that's not their role. They're they, you know, they understand principles and they have good advice from great advisors, but legislation should be at a somewhat high level so that the experts can can um, can adopt more meaningful, tailored um, guidance. Now, the problem with that, which is the way tip- things typically work, is if if they defer too much to someone like the SEC, who's who's um, who's not, you know, who could be viewed as not being friendly to this space, as friendly okay. as the industry may say, then then you know the risk is, of course, they they adopt something which just sort of isn't isn't workable, and so it's. This is why this is going to be a long process, um, and both sides are going to have to kind of um, acknowledge the other and the, the value of the other, and 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 come to the consensus. Yeah. Now, for those listening at home who might not be familiar with it or might have a question, so what's your definition and kind of, or what's your uh, thoughts on the difference between a security and a commodity? So, what 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 exactly are we talking about here? Well, good question. Uh, I mean, you know, security typically is. Um, has you know inherent within it some ability to make money based on uh you know passively holding something right it's just a it's a way in which you know capital can be uh taken on by um, an enterprise of some sort and uh, given back to you at some point at a higher value or it's put at risk in some manner mm-hmm. to develop a thing that is going to um, you'll have a residual interest in and, and will be increased in value and commodities are not that right commodities are just um things you consume um in a way that uh that is sort of separate that yes they can fluctuate in value but uh, based on market forces and not on the reliance on on like an enterprise now what's interesting in this space is and this is what the gillibrand 
um, I think, and, and uh, legislation, Loomis and Gillibrand legislation attempts to address is this idea that, um, you know, who is, who is really in charge of, of you know, at, at what point does something shift from enterprise control to market control? Um, and, and I think um, that same question kind of exists in public securities markets, right? I mean, mm -hmm. at some point, you know, if Starbucks is trading, um, how much of that is based on the fundamentals around Starbucks financial? Right. How much of it is based just on, you know, the whims of, 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 you know, moms and pops. I don't know. I, you know, some academic may know better than me, but that same kind of issue is sort of there, right. It's yeah. sort of dormant in that. It's just not as prevalent as you can see in, and I think what the case that the, the, the digital asset space is the sort of the, the pressure of the digital asset space is putting on things is this, is this is like make that more of a, a point like make more of a point at that which is at some point something's going to transition away from from the centralized control of a of an issuer to um to more market commodity type um, structure yeah i mean bitcoin is uh completely unique you know still looking for satoshi you know this is an instance where it's clear that there's not you know that there's not uh a cabal of people uh, yep. controlling everything else it's just really hard yeah, I mean, I, although, you know, again, without knowing who it is and how it came into being, I mean, I, I guess we don't know that, right? But we sort of, um, I think it's safe to say that that's probably the case. But we yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I remember I was speaking at a conference. The first the first crypto conference I'd ever spoken was early 2017. And there was this sharp guy. He had been, it was an older attorney. He started asking me all these commodities questions. <laughs> And I was like, man, I don't, I don't know anything about commodities. I, was like, I know, ah. uh, especially back then. I mean, now I still, I know that eligible contract participant, and that's about it. And uh, <laughs> man, I was so flat footed, and and uh, and everyone in the audience was like, oh, how come this guy didn't know anything about commodities? <laughs> I I like, know. Oh, well, it's funny, you know, um, you know, when you work at is a, enough. <laughs> I know exactly. That's sort of my point. I'm a securities attorney. I'm not a commodities attorney. And yeah. one of the things you you quickly realize when you work at the SEC is how little you know about securities laws too. I mean, ah. you know, I'm an expert in my area of securities laws, but believe me, securities laws are, yeah. there's a reason why there are people who make their whole career on one little niche issue because mm -hmm. they're, they're very technical. And if you want to know who an expert is on, on trading and markets um, or, you know, exchanges, you look at trading and markets. You don't look to yeah. someone necessarily at Corp Fin. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, I was at Corp Fin. Now, in practice, as you know, when you, you know, the more you practice on issues, you, you sort of can read the same releases and come to your own reasonable conclusions and, and, um, and you can, you can, you can develop expertise over time. But, but there are really, you know, there are experts in this space and, and, um, and, uh, you know, I'm an expert in, in one area of many. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, anything else that you would like to share with us as we as we wrap up here? No, uh, it's great to connect um, yeah. on on the podcast. So we obviously uh, connect a lot offline. So it's, uh, this is fun. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, great. Well, thanks again, Zach. Uh, been very generous with your time, and uh, we hope to have you have you back one day. Thanks, Gary. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series. To the extent that. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.